Story One of The Human Boy and the War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Human Boy and the War by Eden Philpotts. Story One The Battle of the Sand Pit. After the war had fairly got going, naturally we thought a good deal about it, and it was explained to us by Fortescue that behind the theory of Germany licking us, or rots licking Germany, as the case might be, there were two great psychical ideas. As I was going to be a soldier myself, the actual fighting interested me most, but the psychical ideas were also interesting, because Fortescue said that often the cause won the battle. Therefore, it was better to have a good psychical idea behind you, like us, than a rotten one, like Germany. I always thought the best men and the best ships and the best brains and the most money were simply bound to come out top in the long run. But Fortescue said that a bad psychical idea behind these things often wrecks the whole show. And so I asked him if we had got a good psychical idea behind us, and he said we had a champion one, whereas the Germans were trusting to a perfectly deadly psychical idea, which was bound to have wrecked them in any case, even if they'd had twenty million men instead of ten. So that was all right, though no doubt the Germans think their idea of being top dog of the whole world is really finer than ours, which is live and let live. And, as I pointed out to Fortescue, no doubt if we had such a fearfully fine opinion of ourselves as the Germans have, then we also should want to be top dog of the world. And Fortescue said, that's just it, Travers Major, thanks to our sane policy of respecting the rights of all men and never setting ourselves up as the only nation that counts. We do count, first and foremost. But if we'd gone out into the whole world and bawled that we were going to make it Anglo-Saxon, then we should have been laughed at, as the Germans are now, and we should dismally have failed as colonists, just as they have. So, of course, I saw all he meant by his psychical idea, and no doubt it was a jolly fine thought, and most, though not all, of the sixth saw it also. But the fifth saw it less, and the fourth didn't see it at all. The fourth were, in fact, rather an earthy lot about this time, and they seemed to have a foggy sort of notion that might is right, or if it isn't, it generally comes out right, which to the minds of the fourth amounted to the same thing. The war naturally had a large effect upon us, and according as we looked at the war, so you could judge of our opinion in general. I and my brother, Travers Minor, and Briggs and Saunders, though Briggs and Travers Minor were themselves in the lower fourth, were interested in the strategy and higher command. We foretold what was going to happen next, and were sometimes quite right, whereas chaps like Abbott and Blades and Mitchell and Pegram and Rice were only interested in the brutal part, and the bloodshed and the grim particulars about the enemy's trenches after a sortie, and so on. In time, curiously enough, there got to be two war parties in the school. Of course, they both wanted England to win, but we took a higher line about it and looked on to the end and argued about the division of the spoil and the general improvement of Europe and the new map and the advancement of better ideas and so on, while Rice and Pegram and such like took the horrible slaughter line 
and rejoiced to hear of parties surrounded and uhlans who had been eating hay for a week before they were captured and the decks of battleships just before they sank and such like necessary but very unfortunate things i said to mitchell it may interest you to know that real soldiers never talk about the hideous side of war and it would be a good deal more classy if you chaps tried to understand the meaning of it all instead of wallowing in the dreadful details and mitchell answered the details bring it home to us and make us see red and i replied to mitchell what the dickens do you want to see red for and he said everybody ought to at a time like this of course, with such ignorance you can't argue any more than you could with Rice when he swore that he'd give up his home and family gladly in exchange for the heavenly joy of putting a bayonet through a German officer. It wasn't the spirit of war, and I told him so, and he called me Von Travers and said that as I was going to be a soldier, he hoped, for the sake of the United Kingdom in general, there would be no war while I was in command of anybody." gradually there got to be a bit of feeling in the air and we gave out that we stood for tactics and strategy and brain power and rice and his lot gave out that they stood for hacking their way through and as for strategy they had the cheek to say that if it came to actual battle the fourth would back its strategy against the sixth every time it was a sort of challenge in fact and rested chiefly on their complete ignorance of what strategy really meant when I asked Mitchell who were the strategists of the fourth, he gave it away by saying, well, me and Pegram. Well, he and Pegram were merely cunning, nothing more. Mitchell was a good mathematician, and in money matters he excelled on a low plane, while Pegram was admitted to be a master in the art of cribbing, but no other. His bent of mind had been attracted to the subject of cribbing from the first, and while I hated him, and knew that he could never come to much good, I was bound to admit the stories told about his cribbing exploits showed great ingenuity combined with nerve. By a bitter irony, theology was his best subject, but only thanks to the possession of a Bible one inch square. He had found it when doing Christmas shopping with his aunt, who was his only relation, owing to his being an orphan, and when he asked her to buy it for him as one of his Christmas presents, she did so with pleasure and surprise, little dreaming of what was passing in his mind. I never saw the book, nor wished to see it, but Briggs, who did, told me it contained everything only in such frightfully small print that you wanted a magnifying glass to read it. Needless to say, Pegram had the magnifying glass, and thus armed he naturally did scripture papers second to none. He also manipulated a catapult for the benefit of his friends in the lower fourth, of whom he had a great many, and with this instrument, such was his delicacy of aim, he could send answers to questions in an examination through the air to other chaps in the shape of paper pillets. He could also hurl insults in this way, or in fact anything. Once he actually fired his Bible across three rows of forms to Abbott. It flew through the air and fell at Abbott's feet, who instantly put one on it. But Brown, who was the master in command on the occasion, looked up at the critical moment and saw a strange object passing through the air. Only he failed to mark it down. What was that? said Brown to Rice, who sat three chaps off Abbott. A moth, I think, sir, said Rice. 
extraordinary time for a moth to be flying said brown very sir said rice don't let it occur again anyway said de brown who never investigated anything but always ordered that it shouldn't occur again no sir said rice then abbott bent down to scratch his ankle and all was well and this pegram was supposed to have strategy as good as ours i never thought a real chance of a conflict would come but it actually did in a most unexpected manner just before the holidays the weather turned cold for a week and then after about three frosts we had a big snow and in about a day and a night there was nearly a foot of it and walking through the west wood with blades i pointed out that the sand pit under the edge of the fir trees would be a very fine spot for a battle on a small scale i said if one army was above the sand pit and another army was down here trying to storm the position there would be an opportunity for a remarkably good fight and plenty of strategy and if i led the fifth and sixth against the sand pit or if i defended the sand pit against the attacks by the upper and lower fourth the result would be very interesting and blades agreed with me he said he believed that it would give the upper and lower fourth frightful pleasure to have a battle and he was certain they would be exceedingly pleased at the idea in fact he went off at once to find pegram and if possible rice and mitchell the school was taking a walk that afternoon as the football ground was eight inches under snow and some were digging in the snow for eating chestnuts of which a good many were to be found in west wood and others were scattered about so blades went to find mitchell rice and pegram and i considered the situation the edge of the sand pit was about eight feet high and a frontal attack would have been very difficult if not impossible but there was an approach on the left a gradual slope fairly easy and another on the right rather difficult as it consisted of loose stones and tree roots on the whole i thought i would rather defend than attack but as if anything came of it i should be the challenger i felt it would be more sporting to let the foe choose then rice and mitchell came back with blades and they said that nothing would give them greater pleasure than a fight they had heard my idea and thought exceedingly well of it they examined the spot and pretended to consider strategy but of course they knew nothing about the possibilities of defence and attack what they really wanted to know was how many troops they would have and how many we should we counted up and found that in the fifth and sixth leaving out about four who were useless and perkins who would have been valuable but was crocked at footer for the moment we should number thirty-one while the upper and lower fourth would have thirty-eight i agreed to that and rice made the rather good suggestion that we should each have ten kids behind the fighting line to make ammunition and i said i hoped there would be no stones in the snowballs and mitchell said the fourth didn't consist of germans and i might be sure they would fight as fair as we did if not fairer so it was settled for the next saturday and brown and fortescue consented to umpire the battle and fortescue showed great interest in it there were a good many preliminaries to decide and i asked mitchell what chap was to be general-in-chief for the fourth and much to my surprise he said that pegram was and still more to my surprise he said that pegram wished to attack and not defend 
This alone showed how little they knew about strategy, but I only said, all right, and Mitchell actually said that Pegram backed the fourth to take the sand pit inside an hour, and I said that pride generally went before a fall. Then I saw Pegram, which was at a meeting of the commander-in-chief, and we arranged all the details. He asked about the fallen, and I said that nobody would fall. But he said he thought some very likely would, and he also said that it would be more like the real thing, and more a reward for strategy, if, when anybody was fairly bowled over in the battle and prevented from continuing without arrest, that that soldier was considered as a casualty and taken to the rear. This was pretty good for Pegram, but as our superior position on the top of the sand pit was bound to make our fire more severe than his, and put more of his men out of action, I pointed that out. But he said that if I thought our fire would be more severe than his, I was much mistaken. He said the volume of his fire would be greater, which was true, so I let him have his way, and we each selected ten kids for the ammunition. Travers Minor didn't much like fighting against me, but of course he had to, though it was rather typical of Mitchell and Pegram that they were very suspicious of him before the battle, and wouldn't tell him any of the strategy, or give him a command in their army for fear of his being a traitor. And they felt the same to Briggs, though of course Briggs and Travers Minor were really just as keen about victory for the fourth as anybody else in it and the only reason why my brother didn't like fighting against me was that, with my strategy, he felt pretty sure I must win. The generals, Pegram and I, visited the battlefield twice more, and arranged where the wounded were to lie and where the umpires were to stand, in comparative safety behind a tree on the right wing. But, of course, we didn't discuss tactics or say a word about our battle plans. The fight was to last one hour, and if at the end of that time we still held the sand pit, we were the victors. And for half an hour before the battle began, we were to make ammunition and pile snow and do what we liked to increase the chances of victory. I, of course, led the fifth and sixth, and under me I had Saunders as general of the sixth and Norris as general of the fifth. As for the enemy, Pegram was generalissimo, to use his own word, and Rice and Abbott and Mitchell and Blades were his captains. It got jolly interesting just before the battle, and everybody was frightfully keen, and the kids who were not doing orderly and Red Cross work were allowed to stand on a slight hill fifty yards from the sand pit and watch the struggle. And on the morning of the great day, happening to meet Rice and Mitchell, I asked them what was the psychical idea behind the attack of the fourth. And Rice said his psychical idea was to give the sixth about the worst time it had ever had. And Mitchell said his psychical idea was to make the sixth wish it had never been born. They meant it, too, for there was a lot of bitter feeling against us, and I realized that we were in for a real battle, though there would only be one end, of course. They had thirty-eight fighters to our thirty-one, and they had rather the best of the weight and size. But in the sixth we had Forbes and Forrester, both of the first eleven and hard chuckers, and we had three other hard chuckers and first eleven men in the fifth besides Williams, who was the champion long-distance cricket ball thrower in the school. We had all practiced a good deal, and also instructed the kids in the art of making snowballs hard and solid. 
the general feeling with us was that we had the brains and the strategy while the fourth had rather the heavier metal but would not apply it so well as us when a man fell the ambulance in the shape of two red cross kids was to conduct him to a place safe from fire in the rear and when he was being taken from the firing line he was not to be fired at but the battle was to go on though the red cross kids were to be respected i should like to draw a diagram of the field like the diagrams in the newspapers but that i cannot do i can however explain that when the great moment arrived i manned the top of the sand pit with my army and during the half hour of preparation threw up a wall of snow all along the front of the sand pit nearly three feet high and along this wall i arranged the fifth led by norris on the right wing five men commanded by saunders specially guarded the incline on the left which was our weak point and the remaining ten men all from the sixth took up a position five yards to the rear and above the front line in such a position that they could drop curtain fire freely over the fifth i being the grand staff took up a position on the right wing on a small elevation above the army from which i could see the battle in every particular and thwaites of the sixth who was too small and weak to be of any use in the fighting lines was my adjutant to run messages and take any necessary orders to the wings as for the enemy they made no entrenchments or anything of the kind though they watched our dispositions with a great deal of interest pegram studied the incline on our wing and evidently had some ideas about a frontal attack also which would certainly mean ruin for him if he tried it as it would have been impossible to rush the sand pit from the front they made an enormous amount of ammunition and as they piled it within thirty yards of our parapet they evidently meant to come to close quarters from the first i was pleased to observe this they arranged their line rather well in a crescent converging upon our wings but there was no rear-guard and no reserve so it was clear everybody was going into action at once the officers were distinguished by wearing white footer shirts which made them far too conspicuous objects and it was clear that pegram was not going to regard himself as a grand staff but just fight with the rest needless to say i was prepared to do the same and throw myself into the thickest of it if the battle needed me and things got critical but i felt somehow from the first that we were impregnable well the battle began by fortescue blowing a referee's football whistle and instantly the strategy of the enemy was made apparent they opened a terrific fire and their one idea evidently was to annihilate the sixth they ignored the fifth but poured their entire fire upon the sixth and a special firing party of about six or seven chosen shots or sharpshooters poured their entire fire on me where i stood alone about ten snowballs hit me the moment fortescue's whistle went and the position at once became untenable and also dangerous so i retired to the sixth and sent word to the fifth by thwaites to very much increase the rapidity of their fire which they did and pegram appealed that i was out of action but fortescue said i was not it was exceedingly like the great war in a way and the fourth evidently felt to the fifth and sixth what the germans felt to the french and english they merely hated the fifth but they fairly loathed the sixth and wanted to put them all out of action in the first five minutes of the battle 
Needless to say, they failed. But we lost Saunders, who somehow caught it so hot guarding the slope that he got winded and his nose began to bleed at the same moment, which was a weakness of his, brought on suddenly by a snowball at rather close range. So he fell, and the Red Cross kids took him out of danger. This infuriated us, and keeping our nerve well, we concentrated our fire on Mitchell, who had come far too close after the success with Saunders. A fair avalanche of snowballs battered him, and he went down, and though he got up instantly, it was only to fall again. And Fortescue gave him out, and he was conducted to a ruined cowshed where the enemy's ambulance stood in the rear of their lines. I had already ordered the sixth to take open formation and scatter through the fifth, and this undoubtedly saved them, for though we lost my aide-de-camp, Thwaites, who was no fighter and nearly fainted, and was jolly glad to be numbered with those out of action, for some time afterwards we lost nobody and held our own with ease. Once or twice I took a hand, but it wasn't necessary, and when we fairly settled to work we made them see they couldn't live within fifteen yards of us. They made several rushes, however, but by a happy strategy I always directed our fire on the individual when he came in, and thus got two out of action, including Rice. He was a great fighter, and I was surprised he threw up the sponge so soon. But after a regular battering and blinding, he said he'd got it in the neck and fell, and was put out with one eye bunged. Travers Minor also fell, rather to my regret, and what struck me was that, considering all their brag, the fourth were not such good plucked ones when it came to the business of real war as we were. It made a difference finishing off Rice, for he had fought well, and his fire was very accurate, as several of us knew to our cost. I felt now that if we could concentrate on Pegram and Blades, who were firing magnificently, the battle would be practically over. But Blades, owing to his great powers, could do execution and still keep out of range. He was, in fact, their 17-inch gun, you might say, and though Williams on our side could throw further, he proved in action rather feeble and not a born fighter by any means. As for Pegram, he always seemed to be behind somebody else, which, knowing his character, you would have expected. At last, however, he led a storming party to the slope, and leaving the bulk of my forces to guard the front, I led Seven to stem his attack. For the first time since the beginning of the battle, it was hand to hand, but we had the advantage of position and were never in real danger. I had the great satisfaction of hurling Pegram over the slope into his own lines, and he fell on his shoulder and went down and out. He was led away holding his elbow and also limping, but his loss did not knock the fight out of the fourth, though in the same charge they lost Preston and we nearly lost Bassett. But he got his second wind and was saved to us, though only for a time, for Blades, who had a private hate of Bassett, came close and scorned the fire and got three hard ones in on Bassett from three yards, and Fortescue had to say Bassett was done. Blades, however, was also done, and there was a brief armistice while they were taken away. 
we now suddenly concentrated on mitchell who was tiring and had got into range i think he was fed up with the battle for after a feeble return he went down when about ten well-directed snowballs took him simultaneously on the face and chest and then he chucked it and went to the ambulance at the same moment one of their chaps called sutherland did for norris norris had been getting giddy for some time and he also feared that he was frostbitten and when sutherland creeping right under him got him well between the eyes with a hard one he was fairly blinded though very sorry to join our casualties i had a touch of cramp at the same moment but it passed off we'd had about half an hour now and five of the ammunition kids were out of action with frozen hands then we got one more of the enemy in the shape of sutherland and their morrow ought to have begun to get bad but it did not though all their leaders were now down they stuck it well while we simply held them with ease and repelled two more attempts on the slope in fact williams wanted to go down and make a sortie and get a few more out of action but this i would not permit for another five minutes though during those exciting moments we prepared for the sortie and knocked out abbott who much to my surprise had fought magnificently and covered himself with glory though lame on their side they got mcandrew owing to an accident in fact he slipped over the edge of the sand-pit and was taken prisoner before he could get back and we were sorry to lose him not so much for his own sake as because his capture bucked up the fourth to make fresh efforts and then came the critical moment of the battle and a most unexpected thing happened with victory in our grasp and a decimated opposition a frightful surprise occurred and the most unsporting thing was done by the fourth that you could find in the gory annals of war it was really all over bar victory and we were rearranging ourselves under a very much weakened fire when we heard a shout in the woods behind us and the shout was evidently a signal for the whole of the fourth still in action made one simultaneous rush for the slope and of course we concentrated to fling them back but then with a wild shriek there suddenly burst upon us from the rear the whole of their casualties mitchell and rice and pegram came first followed by travers minor and preston and blades and sutherland and abbott they had rested and refreshed themselves with two lemons and other commissariat and then taking a circuitous track from behind their ambulance had got exactly behind us through the wood and now uttering the yells that the regular tommies always utter when charging they were on us with frightful impetus just while we were repelling the frontal attack on the slope and before we had time to divide to meet them in fact they threw the whole weight of a very fine charge on to us and fairly mowed us down there was about a minute of real fighting on the slope and blood flowed freely we got back into the fort so to say but the advancing fourth came back too and the casualties took us in the rear then unfortunately for us i was hurled over the sand-pit and three chaps all defenders came on top of me and half the snow-bank we had built came on top of them with the snow-bank gone it was all up 
I tried fearfully hard to get back, but of course the fourth had guarded the slope when they took it, and in about two minutes from the time I fell out of our ruined fortifications, all was over. In fact, the fourth was now on the top of the sand pit, and the shattered fifth and sixth were down below. One by one our men were flung, or fell over, and then Fortescue advanced from cover with Brown and blew his whistle, and the battle was done. We appealed, but Pegram said all was fair in war, and Fortescue upheld him. And in a moment of rage I told Pegram and Mitchell they had behaved like dirty Germans, and Mitchell said they might or they might not, but war was war anyway. And he also said that the first thing to do in the case of a battle is to win it. And if you win, then what the losers say about your manners and tactics doesn't matter a button, because the rest of civilization will instantly come over to your side. And Blades said the Sixth had still a bit to learn about strategy, apparently, and Pegram, showing what he was to a beaten foe, offered to give me some tips. Mind you, I'm not pretending we were not beaten, because we were, and the victors fought quite as well as we did, but I shall always say that, with another referee than Fortescue, they might have lost on a foul. No doubt they thought it was magnificent, but it certainly wasn't war, at least not what I call war. We challenged them to a return battle the next Saturday, and Pegram said, as a rule, you don't have return battles in warfare, but that he should be delighted to lick us again with other strategies, of which he still had dozens at his disposal. Only Pegram feared the snow would unfortunately all be gone by next Saturday, and the wretched chap was quite right. It had. Mitchell, by the way, got congestion of his lungs two days after the battle, showing how sickness always follows warfare sooner or later. But he recovered without difficulty. End of story one.